Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups, Fallowfield and Mason. In this episode, we hear from Kenyan-born, Bristol-based Audrey Magot Athola, who founded jewellery brand Yala Jewellery in 2017. Named after the village in Kenya where her grandmother lived, the brand focuses on creating as little impact on the planet as possible. I wanted to speak to Audrey about why the mission behind her brand is so important, plus ask for advice on what new founders should consider when planning to do the right thing by the planet and starting their companies all with a view to becoming B Corp certified in the future. Well, thank you for having me, Juliet. It's uh, my pleasure. Why did I start it? It wasn't a conscious decision, as crazy as that sounds. I often say to people that it was a hobby that got out of hand, but I wouldn't recommend that as a, as a way to start a business. It was similar to what you and I were talking about just before we started recording, that I had, you know, a hobby that was, you know, mostly craft space and textiles and all those sorts of things. And I had a friend who told me that I should record what I was doing in the form of a blog. Um, And then I met another person who worked at Wolf and Badger, uh, like way back in the day. And I didn't know what it was. And I was like, do you work in a pet shop? What? And she, um, she, she was the one that was giving me all of the kind of common knowledge today about how you go about owning, I guess, a niche. Um, and how you create uh, content and, you know, leverage that into social and all those things that I had no idea about. But a um, variety of friends said things to me like, you should start a blog, you should sell the things you make, you should get this into stores. And it kind of mushroomed from there. And it was only recently, like within the last three years, that I decided to formalize all of that because it was an Etsy shop and it was really, you know, in my spare time kind of thing. And I realized that I was going to burn out if if I continued the way I was going because I couldn't make all the products myself. I couldn't keep up with demand, which is a nice problem to have. But it meant that I had to kind of unplug everything, switch everything off for a while and then really think about how I wanted to progress if I wanted to progress on that trajectory at all. But that would be my first question to anyone who says they want to start a business would be think about if that's what you really, really want. Because switching from the hobby to the to the formalized, you know, company's house registered is quite different. Absolutely. And someone else had said this to me. It's like, you also don't think about if it fails, you need to factor in if it succeeds. I don't know if you want to give a little bit of description around your jewellery and sort of the design ethos behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned at the at the start, I'm born in Kenya, lived there my whole life until I was about, let's say till I finished uni. Um, I did go to uni in this country, but I would always go home during the holidays. And so I still consider myself very much Kenyan, though I haven't lived there for a long time. But the influence of Kenyan culture and, you know, the the colors the textures the materials that are used you know in various forms of adornment by indigenous tribes within the country are hugely influential on me and it's it's again why i named the brand after uh, the town where my grandmother lived she passed away last year oh, i'm sorry to hear that oh no she had a good run she was 96 but she taught me when i was young 
things like weaving, using uh, like dried grasses and things to make baskets and all sorts of things like knitting, crochet, etc. And my mum as well taught me as much as she could till she couldn't teach me anymore. But that was around the same time that YouTube was becoming a thing. So that was quite helpful. To actually answer your question, the, the design ethos behind the jewellery itself is influenced by those things, but also governed by the ability of the artisans to make the things that I come up with because they work in what's called the informal sector, meaning that they they don't participate fully in the economy. They are unbanked by and large. They don't necessarily have formal training in what they're doing. They don't have access to fine tools or fancy machinery. You know, it's very low tech. They use what they have and they do what they can. And so in the beginning, when I went to uh, find all these various artisans and had sketches of things I'd like to make or reference images from, you know, Pinterest and stuff, they, they kind of, you know, cut it very short and said, yeah, we can't make that. We don't have that. We won't be able to do that because we don't have access to, you know. And so it was very much them telling me what they were able to make. And then starting from that basis is how we built the first collection. People often say to me like, oh, did you have sustainability in mind from the beginning? And I say no. Not that I was determined to to make a horribly eco-unfriendly brand. Of course not. But the, the level to which we use recycled and upcycled materials wasn't my choice. It was the artisans telling me available. And this is these are the confines with which we need to work within. I have a friend from school called Lenny who works as an um, illustrator now, and I can't draw to save my life. And so my, my horrible sketches that I'd started out with, I realized very quickly that I needed what's called a tech pack, which is, again, you know, I, I did lots of extra courses um, at places like LCF to go and learn all these things because I didn't know anything about it. So I figured out what I needed, worked out that I didn't have the skills myself to create a proper tech pack. And so I went and found Lenny and said, oh my goodness, um, can you help me with this? I need, this is what I need. This is how it needs to look. And she was absolutely brilliant. And we worked together very collaboratively on that first collection and trying to find that sweet spot between being true to your own creative vision, making products that are unique, but also things that people will actually want to buy on a Venn diagram. It's actually quite difficult to achieve. Um, And so, you know, there was a couple of false starts with products we made in the beginning that were just ridiculous. I was trying to come up with this idea that within any collection, you have one piece that is like um, a showcase type piece that people may not necessarily wear, but it would get you a lot of press attention. But we went a bit too far down that rabbit hole and came up with this bizarre, like it looked like a piece of armour. The inspiration was great. The execution was terrible. I think it's really important what you mentioned about creating something that's true to your values, but also that will sell because without the sale, you could be a creative genius. But if you're running a company, you obviously need the sale as well. You mentioned about being sustainable, you're B Corp certified. You have huge, important declarations on your website about transparency and the people that you work with. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what that means to you to be B Corp certified and how that came about. Yes. Um, I, I first discovered what B Corp was when I was halfway through a pint of Ben and Jerry's. This was long ago when I lived in Edinburgh and I just happened, you know, to look on the side of the packet and I saw this B and I thought, what is that? Don't, you know, didn't know what it was. 
Um, and that, like the logo, I guess, kind of, you know, cemented in my mind. Then a bit later on, I was listening to a podcast and those ads, you know, in the middle of the podcast, they were talking about Ben and Jerry's and they were saying Ben and Jerry's is a, a B Corp. And I thought, what is that? What is that? I keep hearing this thing. What is that? And so I, you know, Googled around and found their website and thought, oh, wow, this is brilliant. Because what I didn't appreciate is that no no disrespect, obviously, to organizations like Fairtrade, but Fairtrade focuses on single products like bananas or coffee, whereas B Corp covers the entire company from, you know, who you hire and what your own internal policies are all the way down your supply chain to how you pay people. What do you do with your wastewater if you're generating wastewater? Where do you get your energy from? Is it is it from re- renewable sources? What do you where, where do you source your things from? Are they within 100 miles of your main operating base? And I was just intrigued. I was absolutely intrigued. And I thought, wow, I can't imagine what the world would look like if every company took all of these different things into account. I mean, this was long before I even had the idea that I was going to start a business. But once I'd arrived at that decision, I also knew that it would be much easier to start as a B Corp now and then not have to worry about retrofitting lots of policies and practices later on. And if you go on the website, there's uh, something called the impact assessment, and you can go through the series of questionnaires to figure out if you would qualify or not, you need to get a minimum score of 80. And I did it the first time. And then I realized that because I hadn't been in business for long enough, I didn't have a full year's worth of accounts, because you have to hand over your P&L and lots of different kind of receipts and proof of purchases and all sorts of things. And I didn't have a year's worth of that. So I, I had to put it down, wait until a year had gone by and I had enough uh, records basically to submit. And also a couple of other things like photos from the workshops where the artisans are, pictures to to, uh, to serve as proof basically of certain claims that I'd made within that impact assessment. And then, yeah, went went through it all. It was very painful because there were there were certain things I didn't have. A lot of people don't realize B Corp aren't like the the ethical police. They're not there to catch you out. They're there to help you. And they want they want more people to qualify. Of course they do. And so, you know, I, I was very grateful for the help that I received. The internal operations of B Corp were very helpful to say, look, don't worry. If you don't have a code of conduct document, just go write one and then come back and, and submit it. If you don't have purchasing policy, just go write it and then come back and. Think Things like Oxfam have lots of very stealable content that they encourage other people to put on their own website. The Ethical Trading Initiative is wonderful. There's Progress Out of Poverty that had some brilliant stats. And I was very lucky they'd used Kenya as a case study. So I had, you know, box fresh, very relevant stats that I could apply to working out how I pay the artisans and what impact that's going to have on them financially and their network of dependents as well. So there was all these different things. And it's it's very unique to each company because I appreciate that some companies have no employees. They don't have a really long supply chain. They're like a, a sole trader doing their own thing. But they could still find something within that impact assessment that is relevant to them and is tailored for them. How I understand it is B Corp provide a really good framework that you can just do a better job. And it's whether you're sourcing a green bank provider or looking who provides your internet, you're a sole trader and a service company, you can still do a better job of it. Absolutely. And and that's the other thing that um, people don't tend to do, which I think everyone should do. The impact assessment is brilliant, exactly as you just said, at showing you where you're falling short, where you're doing well, and which other areas you could be improving in. Because even once you've certified as a B Corp, you have to recertify every three years because they want to see that you're actually improving constantly, that you haven't certified and said, yeah, okay, that's it, I don't have to do anything else now. 
you, you're constantly looking for more ways that you can improve your business in tiny little incremental ways that still have a net benefit. And it can prompt things that you might not have even considered, which could be good, quick wins, but you, unless you'd considered them, you wouldn't know. I'd always known that I wanted to make sure that the artisans were paid a wage that would work for them because too often in the interest of cutting costs in order to improve your profit margin, the first people that suffer, we've seen this with the fashion industry, with what's happening in the Far East and the pay up campaign that came about as a result of COVID, people will cut costs in the easiest ways that they can. And that's too often the labour supply. And so I remember saying to the artisans that, look, once we've agreed on how hard it is to make an item, so we go through a sampling process, and once they've figured out how we're going to make it and we've arrived at a version that we're both happy with, they quote me a per unit cost because obviously they work, you know, I pay them per piece of jewellery that they make. And once they've said, okay, that pair of earrings is going to be this much per unit, I don't negotiate after that because I know that they've quoted me a price that is accurate once of all because they've worked out this is how difficult it's going to be to make this thing. This is how long it takes to make one on average. And so the price that they're quoting has taken all of that into account, plus the cost of material. And they know that the price that they're going to quote for that will leave them with adequate profit from their own perspective. And in the beginning, you know, because we hadn't yet got to know each other very well, they were a bit cagey. But I was, you know, in the interest of transparency, I was always very honest with them about why I was so curious, why I was asking so many questions. The fact that I had this B Corp thing, certain things that I needed to ensure within my supply chain to the best of my ability. And as time has gone on and, you know, we've gotten to know each other, they've realized that, yes, I will always pay you on time. I will always give you a deposit so that you're not out of pocket. And we've built a lot of trust. They're now a lot more open with me about what they're doing with the money. And not to say that, you know, I want them to give me chapter and verse on how they're spending their earnings, not at all. But they would say things to me like, you know, once you've given us the deposit, that covers the cost of production. And once you give us the balance, that's pure profit. And I said, you know, that's wonderful. Good for you. Because, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but people in developing countries, um, using Kenya as a specific example, typically have a network of, on average, six dependents. And so when you're paying someone a thriving wage, not just a living wage, when you're paying one person a thriving wage, it's actually having an impact on way more people than you realize. It's paying for school fees, it's paying for elder care, it's paying for funeral costs, it's paying for it's paying for all sorts of things all the time. And so this is why it's so important to ensure that what you pay people is actually enough for them to live on and not constantly be struggling and scraping by. What does it mean to you to run a company that is very ethically minded? Yeah, it means that I can sleep at night. And I'm very lucky. I do appreciate the privilege that I have with being able to look every single person in the eye who has made one of my products. I know them. I've met them. I know their wives. I've bounced their babies on my knee. I've, do you know what I mean? Like I, I know them. So it means to me that there is no way that I could in good conscience try and pull a fast one on them. I presume for your clients as well, being part of that story and part of that uh, legacy, when they wear your jewellery, they know they're part of that ecosystem as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one way that I've really tried to bring the customer into that story, you know, beyond putting as much information as possible on the website, I also add, um, I interviewed all of the artisans when we were doing a photo shoot once. And I, I, I got them to all come in one by one, took their photo and interviewed them, asked them like five questions. And then I took that information and put them on the back of these little postcards. And so when you buy a product inside the package that you get will be a photo of one of the makers with a little bit of their story on the back and their name. And it's because I want you as the customer to understand that a person with ambitions beyond jewellery made this product. 
right? For a lot of people in the informal sector, they didn't have grand aspirations of working in jewelry when they were younger. They want to be lawyers. They want to feed their kids. They want to move from a mud house into a brick house. They want, do you know what I mean? Like they have aspirations far greater than the way they happen to earn money. And so you in purchasing this product is having an impact on their lives. And I want you to be able to look them in the face and know their name and appreciate what that means to them. Do you feel like over the years of you making your beautiful jewellery that you've seen clients expect and demand and command this level of service? There's a weird imbalance between customers who are used to dealing with faceless corporations and customers who make a point of buying from small business, but they sometimes forget the operations level between the two. I'll give you an example. People like Amazon, you can order something today and get it tomorrow and the whole process is seamless. And if you want to return it, they'll give you a label and you can return it. And that's also seamless. When you're a small business, you don't have the economies of scale to necessarily operate at that level. But because of the Amazonification of everything, even when people say, oh, yes, I want to support small business, they forget that they're dealing with a small business. And so they still expect Amazon level of service and efficiency and speed from someone who doesn't have the means to make that possible. In terms of running your company and your brand, have you got any advice for new founders starting a company that they should do right at the beginning? Yes. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate how hard it is to run a business. It doesn't matter what the business is. A lot of people will say, I'm going to start a business. They do all the stuff, they set up their website, and then they sit back and wait for the sales to come roll again. It doesn't work that way at all. I think people need to do their research And they need to understand the industry that they're entering into because you don't know what you don't know. There are so many things you won't know. And there are so many people, unfortunately, who will take advantage of that naivety and the fact that you don't know to get one over on you, basically, and take advantage. And so I actually prepped my business for a year before I hit the go button on the website. And it takes a lot longer than people realize. It's taken me three years to actually become profitable. I was following the kind of lean startup model where I did not spend money unless I absolutely had to. But there were things I did at the beginning, which I couldn't quite afford, but I knew I would thank myself for later, one of which was getting an accountant. I got an accountant long before I could actually afford one. I'm very glad because she's seen lots of different business models. She was full of wonderful advice all the while making sure that the books were up to date. And I always knew exactly how much money I had available for anything. And also things like there were only so many hours in the day. And so trying to steal time by burning the candle at both ends will end badly. That's the beginnings of burnout, isn't it? So I think that sometimes there'll be times, maybe later on, once you've actually started to make some money um, and the business is self-sufficient, that's when you can start to decide things like, okay, I know I need to do that particular job. I could do it myself. But should I? I could. If I had to, of course I could. But should I? And there's a lot of guilt at the beginning where you're always saying to yourself, don't pay for anything you could do yourself because you have to conserve cash. It's incredible. All huge congratulations. And thank you, Audrey, so much for your time today. You're welcome. Um, I've really appreciated everything you've shared. It has been great to hear from Audrey on how she planned not only to turn her hobby into a business, but to ensure every aspect of the business operates in the best possible way when it comes to looking after its people as well as the planet. If you'd like to contact Audrey, you'll find all of her details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice she has so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. 
I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it. Thank you.